This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Covaris, Ranchford Eye Center, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today's show is a taped program. It's all new information, new stuff, but we had to tape it in advance for today, so we will not be able to take your questions live. With that, uh, last week I had the pleasure of being in Colorado Springs, Colorado, uh, and I was working with the Professional Bull Riders Tour. While there, I did get to do a little bit of travel. I drove from Denver to Colorado Springs and stopped at the United States Air Force Academy. If you're ever in that area, stop there. It is a beautiful, beautiful academy, um, beautiful landscape, and such an interesting history of the Air Force Academy, which is you know, relatively recent. Their first graduating class was 1959. So it was a wonderful trip, and I got to work with some very talented bull riders there. Today's guest is going to be Dr. Isaac Moss. Dr. Isaac Moss will be on with us shortly, um, and we did we taped three segments with Dr. Moss. Dr. Moss is an associate professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of Connecticut, and he's going to be talking about a topic that affects so many people, low back pain. Matter of fact... It affects approximately 85% of all Americans at some time in their lives and, in fact, costs the United States about $100 billion a year annually in lost revenue because of people being out of work and medical costs. So we're going to talk to him about specifically low back pain and some treatments, both surgical and non-surgical treatments. This day in medicine, November 3rd. Today is the Feast of San Hubert, or St. Hubert. He's the patron saint of hunters. Now, the reason I chose this is because it's interesting that San Hubert's disease, or St. Hubert's disease, is hydrophobia. And he really, uh, he was around in 750. So this is a long time ago. Hydrophobia is also synonymous with what we know today as rabies. So they called it hydrophobia because they felt that people who were affected with the problem were unable to drink water or they were afraid of water. When actually the disease itself, rabies, causes intense spasms of the throat so that it's so painful someone can't drink or swallow. So then it became known as hydrophobia. One of the things in the news that I'm being asked a lot about is this outbreak in New Jersey of an adenovirus. An adenovirus is a relatively common virus that we see at different times of the year. Tragically, this has resulted in the tenth of 10 children who are being cared for in a long-term care facility. There's no reason to panic, and the reason being that this has been restricted not only to one facility, but one section of that facility. So the infection itself has been contained. Unfortunately, it has resulted in really 
infecting and affecting young people who have other medical problems and has resulted in death. The other story we're hearing a lot about is the flu, getting the flu vaccine. There was a story on the Internet about a physician couple, a husband and wife, who were both physicians, and their son died 10 days before he was scheduled to get the flu vaccine, and he died of the flu on Christmas Day last year. They were delayed because uh, the uh, his wife gave birth to a young child, to a, a newborn, and they delayed getting their son to his pediatric visit. So they tried to get the vaccine at a local CVS. The problem was, in Texas, the law states that the pharmacist cannot give the vaccine to any child under the age of 18. So they put it off until the child's pediatric visit on January 2nd. Unfortunately, that delay cost their child his life. They're out there now trying to help parents become really more aware of the need to get children vaccinated. It is so crucial, and, you know, maybe we could learn something from their sadness. The other thing we're following is is acute flaccid myelitis. This is the polio-like infection or illness that has affected the nervous system in young children. We still don't have a cause for that. We're going to be talking about back pain, but one of the hot topics that everybody talks about is chronic pain and opioid addiction. You know, chronic pain affects about 50 million adults in the United States. That's about 20% of our entire population. And chronic pain is pain that occurs most or every day for the past six months. So most days over the past six months, or usually every day for the past six months, there is this pain. Now, pain is a natural thing to happen, right? I mean, when you're injured, it's a normal response to injury. Why do we have pain? Because With pain, you then restrict activity in the limb that may be injured and give it a chance to heal. It's like putting it in a splint. It's a natural way of doing it. But pain wasn't made to be there over a long period of time. Eventually, as the injury clears, the pain gets better. Unless there are other circumstances, like nerve pain, which when it affects the nerve, it's very difficult to get rid of that type of pain. So it is a natural response. Low back pain, as I mentioned, affects over 85% of Americans. But when we look at the financial implications of all of pain, not just low back pain, we're talking about a number of about $560 billion. So it's important to really talk about how we're going to approach people with chronic pain with non-opioid treatments. And it's a discussion we need to have, not just in the medical population, but across the board as a society. One of those discussions we're going to get back with after a short break, because we're going to be chatting with my guest, Dr. Isaac Moss, who is an orthopedic surgeon specializing in the treatment of the spine, which is, as I said, a source of a lot of back pain. With that... We're going to take a short break and be back. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back. This is Dr. Anthony Alessi, and I'm 
happy to welcome my guest today, who is Dr. Isaac Moss. Dr. Moss is an Associate Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Connecticut. He is fellowship trained in spine surgery. So his primary practice is dealing with patients who have chronic spinal problems, either their neck, low back, and low back pain. Isaac, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Isaac, let's start with how you got here. Uh, your training. I know you trained at some point in Toronto, but uh, take us through the training of an orthopedic spine surgeon. Sure. Um, so spine surgery is an interesting specialty because it's sort of split between orthopedic surgery and neurosurgery. So there's sort of two routes to get there. I'll tell you mine. So I uh, went to medical school in McGill. I'm actually Canadian originally, so a uh, documented migrant worker. And um, <laughs> did you come on a caravan? <laughs> no, no, I, uh, I took a plane. But um, in any case, um, I uh, did medical school there. Then I spent uh, seven years in the University of Toronto doing an orthopedic surgery residency. And so in a, in a residency, you do a very general education. You learn all about uh, all, all the bones in the body, basically hips, shoulders, knees. And then um, uh, it comes to a certain point where you want to subspecialize. Um, I spent uh, seven years there, so five years was clinical training. I also did uh, two years of uh, bioengineering uh, degree, uh, working on trying to regenerate uh, discs, which we can talk a little, uh, a little bit about later. Um, so after finishing my uh, orthopedic, general orthopedic training, I decided uh, that I wanted to specialize in spine surgery. So in order to do so, you do see some spine surgery and are involved in spine surgery during a residency, uh, but to really uh, take it on in a uh, meaningful and sophisticated manner, you do need some extra training. So I went to uh, Rush University in Chicago, uh, where I did a year just focus on the spine. Um, and in that uh, fellowship, which is what we call it, which is, again, the subspecialty training, I was able to work with uh, some actually very well-known surgeons and really uh, more of a real apprenticeship to understand how they approach spinal pathology and uh, how I can approach that in my practice. It's interesting to see, first of all, so many people having spine surgery these days. Is it because we're changing, our bodies are changing, more sedentary, obesity? What has caused almost what's an epidemic of back problems? That is a uh, probably billion-dollar question, uh, which we, we have some answers to. Um, so about 85% of the population has back pain at some point in their life. So including me and probably you sitting here in our chairs. Sure. Um, it's very common. Um, what's very interesting is the amount of back pain somebody has really has very little to do with how bad their spine actually looks. So I see people all the time that may be in terrible pain but have an almost normal MRI, and then I see people with horrible MRIs and have almost no pain. So there is some sort of disconnect there uh, in our body with respect to how we perceive pain in our backs. Um, you know, there's a lot of sort of different theories on why this may be happening. Um, one of my favorites is actually... Uh, there's a great book called uh, The Story of the Human Body by a guy named Daniel Lieberman. And he, he talks about two kinds of evolution. He talks about cultural evolution and biologic evolution. Now, biologic evolution takes millions of years, and this is how we ended up as humans, uh, all the way from the single-celled organism. Um, cultural evolution happens in a period of 100 years, maybe. And uh, so our lifestyles have changed from being hunter-gatherers, which is what really we evolved to be, uh, 
to being sedentary people who sit at desks, shop at grocery stores, and um, uh, eat too much, uh, don't do enough exercise, and uh, our bodies really haven't caught up to this kind of lifestyle. And so uh, our spines, which evolved really from quadrupeds into what we are today, uh, perhaps aren't ideally designed for our current lifestyle. We know that when you sit, uh, that's the highest pressure within your disc, actually. They did these studies back in Sweden in the 80s looking at um, how much, the, in, in various positions, how much pressure is generated within the discs, which are the shock absorbers between the, bi- the bones of your spine. And in fact, when you're sitting down, it actually causes the highest pressure. So perhaps our sedentary lifestyles are contributing to this degeneration of our spines. Uh, in addition, there's a gigantic genetic component to this. So again, why would somebody's, one person's spine um, wear out faster than someone else's? Mostly you can actually blame your parents uh, which you may want to blame for other things sure. as well. Um, um, but there's a variety of things. So we do know there's a big genetic component. Uh, we do know that our sedentary lifestyles, uh, gaining weight, uh, not being as strong, not spending as much time doing physical activity, all these are contributing to what really is a uh, significant epidemic. Treatment of back pain has gone through an evolution. We'll talk a little bit about surgical, but non-surgical treatments. Um, you know, the old days and even today, traction, was always a big thing. Chiropractic. Uh, I, I know it's, it's a question a lot of people, but does it help? Right. So. Um, and so, in your experience. Yeah, yeah. So for, for, first of all, about 80, probably 98% of people with back pain never need surgery, which is great. If all the, you know, again, 85% of people have back pain, I wouldn't have time to talk to you today if all of them needed surgery. Um, so most people don't need surgery, and it's a, man- it's a matter of managing their symptoms. As I said, most people don't have something dangerous going on in their spine. Thank God it's actually very rare, no matter how bad your back pain is, uh, to have actual danger pain. So one of the things when you see your doctor for your back pain, that's really what they're trying to figure out. Is this the 98% that's uh, painful but not dangerous, or maybe that 2% that is something that really needs to be taken care of? Um, so just talking about the other 98%, so what are the things we can do? So number one, the number one treatment is probably getting back into shape. We know that strengthening your core is uh, essential. It offloads the, the spine. The spine, again, is really the building block that's holding up your entire body. So if it's doing all the work and your muscles are not, it has to carry a bigger load. If you can strengthen your muscles, just like we do around all other joints, uh, your pain will get better. So that's really the number one thing. Uh, Unfortunately, that takes a big investment from each one of us, and that's sometimes hard to do given our lifestyles, but that is the number one thing. Things like yoga, Pilates, um, these are all um, exercises that really focus on your core strength. And the nice thing is, this doesn't, you don't need to join a gym. You can do this at home with a DVD, online. There's lots of things in just a short 10 minutes a day, you could probably make a big impact. Um, when that doesn't always work, or some people need a little more direction, so some people go to physical therapy. In my opinion, physical therapy is really to show you the right exercises to do and put you on the right track. Um, you know, there are a lot of other things that are called modalities that a physical therapist may use, so things like a TENS unit, which is a stimulation, uh, different kinds of uh, temperature, hot and cold, which all have their place perhaps to loosen up your muscles, uh, but certainly shouldn't be the be-all and end-all. It's the exercise that's the most important thing keeping yourself flexible, keeping yourself strong. Um, Chiropractic is very uh, common. Uh, In my opinion, I think it does have its place. Um, Again, these are not dangerous conditions, and if somebody can uh, 
either loosen your spine up, uh, which is, uh, you know, with chiropractic ma manipulation, um, then perhaps uh, that could be helpful. But again, I always put that as a bridge to a patient then taking control of his own destiny and strengthening up his spine. So when you have an acute flare-up, maybe you can't go to the gym. I understand that. And that's where I think some of these uh, other modalities can be helpful. Things like chiropractic, things like acupuncture. It's been around for thousands of years. There's something to it. I really can't say I understand how it works, but people are helped from it. And uh, I'm really for anything that helps and uh, gets you back to function. That's great, and I want to get into that a little bit more. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with Dr. Isaac Moss. Dr. Moss is a spine surgeon at the University of Connecticut, and I know people like to have phone numbers. If you want to reach Dr. Moss, the phone number is 860-679-6662. We're going to be back with Dr. Moss talking a little bit about spine surgery. Who should you see, an orthopedic surgeon, a neurosurgeon, and some of the newer techniques for approaching spine problems. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds and our guest today is Dr. Isaac Moss from the University of Connecticut. Isaac, we were talking a little bit about non-surgical options for people with low back pain. Um, and we haven't even gotten into neck pain yet, but there are more invasive things. We hear all about epidural steroid injections, um, people who have chronic pain getting implanted stimulators, um, moving on up. Uh, do those things work? Uh, it's hard to say a blanket yes or no to any of these uh, treatments because they all have their place. But and if you look at the data for epidural steroid injections. Not great. No. No, it's actually, uh, no. surprisingly, it, it's not great. So. Um, but I still think it has its But we place. do a lot of them. Right. Uh, and, and I think this is where uh, having a doctor that you could trust and sit down and sort of go away from that sort of factory mentality of you come in, you have a diagnosis, here's your uh, injection, and then let's see what happens or whatever the treatment may be. Um, in certain cases, I think there's value. So what an epidural injection really is is they're taking uh, cortisone or kind of steroid and they're putting it around the nerves of your spine. And all that can do is decrease, actually, to be honest, we don't know 100% why it works. It does, when it does work, we're not 100% sure why it does. Uh, but for a portion of people that have primarily leg pain, what we call radiculopathy, which is like sciatica, um, there is uh, a portion of people that are helped. And the question is, why are they helped? It's not actually changing their MRI. Their MRI before the injection, after the injection, would look exactly the same. But somehow the steroid, which was an anti-inflammatory, takes away or breaks that pain pathway that's around the nerve. And if there is a component of inflammatory pain around the nerve, then it may get better. Uh, to be honest, though, the reason the data, uh, as you said, is not great is because in the long run, it probably doesn't make a gigantic difference. Uh, because the pathology is still there, the MRI is not being changed. So uh, there are certain cases, though, where they're very useful. If you take something like a herniated disc, these are extremely common. That's a piece of uh, the disc, a piece of the shock absorber, the middle part, which can come out and push on your nerve and give you sciatica or pain shooting down your leg. These are very common. They happen all the time. The truth is, though, about 90% of them will get better on their own. This can take, though, somewhere between 6 and 12 weeks. And uh, if anyone out there has ever had this kind of nerve pain, that's a long 6 to 12 weeks. Um, so 
you could approach it and say, well, let's just do surgery right away. But in my opinion, if you could avoid having someone uh, operate on your back, it's probably a good idea, even coming from a spine surgeon. Um, so how can we keep people, people comfortable? An injection is one of those ways where does it really change the course of treatment? Maybe not, but it can keep you comfortable while you're getting better. Without using narcotics. Exactly. I mean, I'm very much against, uh, even before this whole opioid crisis, uh, really, um, if you want to look at data, there's, there's very, you know, uh, taking opioid or narcotic pain medication is... <clears throat> Is, uh, is actually terrible for you. It's terrible for your pain. It makes you feel more pain in the end of the day. Uh, when you do, if you do get into a situation where you do need a short-term uh, pain control, they don't work as well. And actually, we know that it makes your outcome from surgery worse. So uh, I think that is sort of the number one thing we can avoid is uh, using narcotics. And if having an injection perhaps can keep your pain under control for a few weeks, or even a month or longer, while uh, your body sort of takes care of the problem itself, uh, then uh, it, it is worth, worthwhile. Um, injections for back pain alone are certainly more questionable. Uh, part of that is, as I, as I said before, uh, there's very little correlation between an MRI finding and how much back pain. So it's very hard to find a target for these injections when we're talking about back pain alone. When it's a nerve pain, it's easy to trace that particular nerve back to the place in your spine where it came out of and put an injection around that nerve, which can give you some relief. When it's pure back pain, this becomes more difficult. Um, some of the other treatments that are out there that are, again, more invasive than we talked about before, things like spinal cord stimulators. Um, right. So they that, work. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not a real fan of just putting hardware into somebody. Right. Uh, to a patient. The problem is the spinal cord stimulators don't actually solve a problem. What they do is, is they give a short electrical stimulation or a small electrical stimulation onto your spinal cord itself to confuse the spinal cord so you stop feeling the pain. Like a TENS unit. It's like a TENS unit, but it's In literally your on your spinal cord. Right. So um, the reason... Uh, so actually, the way I look at that, that is really an end-stage treatment. This is not for fixable problems, okay? So we'll talk about surgery in a few minutes, but if something can be addressed by surgery, I think you're probably better off than having the spinal cord stimulator in. I, I look at that as really a last, last, last resort, and it only really uh, probably works for very specific situations. Um, but this certainly should not be a first-line treatment, um, and it's not something I personally prescribe, uh, but certainly there are other pain physicians that do. Um, but again, I look at that as a last resort only for people that don't have a problem that's otherwise fixable. Okay, so let's get to surgery. When should someone have surgery? So um, I think we can sort of break this up into two categories. Number one is sort of uh, more urgent type of things. So uh, in the spine world, that's when you start to have what's called a neurologic deficit. That means uh, significant weakness in your legs, perhaps, or your arms, or any other part of your body. Um, that uh, could be sometimes numbness, or although numbness, we can sometimes wait and see how things go, because that can improve on its own. Uh, any change to people's bowel and bladder function, because again, all the nerves that control all this function of your body do go through your spine and through your spinal cord. So if the nerves are compressed enough, uh, then um, uh, they can uh, cause these neurologic deficits, like I said, the weakness, the numbness, the changes in your bowel and bladder function, which would be um, sometimes an indication for emergent surgery. So again, but fortunately, that's really the minority of patients. Uh, most people, the reason they have surgery is because they've tried everything else and they're just not getting better. Um, as I said before, the herniated disc, most people 
get better within six to 12 weeks. So usually in my patients, I say, let's wait it out. We'll try to keep you comfortable, physical therapy, medications, maybe oral steroids, maybe an anti-inflammatory, maybe an injection. And then we get to that eight to 12 week mark and sort of take a step back and say, are you really getting better or are you not getting better? And if they uh, are on their way, we'll say, let's continue to wait. If they've had a relapse or they're not any better than they were you know, several uh, weeks ago, then that's a time where we start to think, hey, is there a surgery that can help us? And um, that's really the number one question. Not sort of, so number one, there's two questions. A, how bad is the patient's function as a result of their problem? And number two, is there a problem we can correct? Because at the end of the day, there's really only two major things we do in surgery, uh, in spinal surgery. We do what's called a decompression, meaning we make space for nerves, take away compression. Uh, another thing would be, um, putting in some sort of hardware, which would be what's called a spinal fusion, which is stopping the motion between two bones of the spine, or uh, in some techniques, even replacing a disc so you have a mobile but artificial uh, disc uh, in your spine. So it's not, oh, there's really no magic about what we do. And when I look at a patient and I say, uh, number one, where's your pain? Number two, and more importantly, how is your function um, affected by this pain? And then the third and, uh, a question is, when I look at your imaging that you'd have, so usually you would need an MRI or a CT scan, can I find a specific thing in your spine that is causing this that I can then remove or stabilize to improve your function? So, okay, it's determined somebody needs surgery. When should they see an orthopedic spine surgeon versus a neurosurgeon? So in my opinion, that question shouldn't be asked. The question is, you should probably go seeing a spine surgeon. Um, now, the, um, the, as I said, there's two ways to get to being a spine surgeon, either through the neurosurgery route or, for the orth or through the orthopedic surgery route. Back in the day, as the specialty was evolving, um, the neurosurgeons would do the nerve work and the orthopedic surgeons would do the bone work. Uh, however, the past probably 20 I years... I remember those days. Yeah. So, Okay. <laughs> Don't need to date yourself. Here, sure, Tony. I did. Um, but it actually wasn't that long ago. Even when I started training, um, you know, but 15 years ago was sort of similar. Um, but now spine surgery has gotten complicated, like the rest. And we're also subspecialized. You know, you go to the hand surgeon, he may be a pinky surgeon, and you need a thumb surgeon. And uh, <laughs> spine surgery has become to the point where um, there's a lot of technology, there's a lot of different procedures, and it's gotten to be complicated. So now you have what's called a spine fellowship that generally people are going to specialize. As I said, I went to Chicago to do this. But even the neurosurgeons who do get a lot of spine training in their residency, if they're really going to be serious about dedicating their practice to spine surgery, they'll probably go and do another extra year training in spine surgery. So really, it shouldn't really matter. When you're looking for a surgeon, you find someone who has a fellowship training in spine surgery, and they'll probably do you a service, regardless if their background is orthopedic or neurosurgery. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with Dr. Isaac Moss. Uh, some of the questions we want to get to are, what is minimally invasive surgery, and what is a comprehensive spine center? We're going to be back shortly. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back in our final segment of this program with Dr. Isaac Moss. We've been talking about back pain and back surgery. And Isaac, before the break, we talked a little bit about the types of surgery and who to see. But we hear a lot about minimally invasive spine surgery. What is that? That's a good question. Um, and there's really no actually straight answer for that. Um, in my opinion, it's not a particular procedure. It's more of a philosophy. 
So the idea is, as I said, somebody comes in with a certain pathology in their spine, so something in there that is causing their dysfunction. And we need to take care of that. Um, so when you look at traditional surgery, before we got to what we call open spine surgery, there was sort of a lot of collateral damage done in order to get down to the spine. Our spine is encased in our body. It's, it's really not on your back. It's in the middle of your body. So to get down there, you need to cut something. You need to pull something off in order to do the work on your nerves. Um, and in the past, before we had some enabling technologies, what this really meant was a cut in your back, taking all the muscle off and getting down there, which again, traumatized all this muscle almost unnecessarily in order to get to the spine. So with minimally invasive surgery, Again, the philosophy is doing the job, so doing the same thing you would have done otherwise, but with less collateral damage. And it's, so it's, it's not, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, people like to advertise the size of the incision. The size of the incision is big. People always break. Did you see how small the, honestly, I'd rather have a big incision and know the guy saw what he wanted to do. You know, so I, I, so I look at, as uh, I one of my mentors, uh, Frank Phillips, told me, minimally invasive surgery needs to be maximally effective. So you don't care if you wake up and your incision's small if your pain is still there. <laughs> so I try, uh, my philosophy is always to try to do the least I need to do to get the job done. And sometimes that is a, a less than one inch incision. So to do a discectomy, I can do that very effectively and very safely with a one-inch incision and a Band-Aid, just like they show on TV, and you go home about an hour after surgery. Um, however, if someone has scoliosis, um, it's not always the case. So scoliosis is a curvature of the spine. Now, there are some less invasive techniques that I use uh, to treat scoliosis. Not everybody needs a big opening in there from stem to stern in their entire back. You can do it through small incisions. But again, um, it's a matter of of trying to understand with your particular skill set, with the technology you have available, can you achieve your goals? And in my opinion, if you can do that with less collateral damage to a patient's musculature so they can recover functionally better, then that's great. But if you can't, you got to still do the job, which is why I do both. I do minimally invasive surgery and I do maximally invasive surgery. Again, the necessary to get the job done. Well, a lot of things have been changing and, and looking at the future. One of the things uh, here at, at UConn is a comprehensive spine center. What is that? What makes up a comprehensive spine center? So I think the idea is in the past, uh, some of us sort of worked on islands. So you would have... Um, you know, an orthopedic surgeon that had a skill set. We had a neurosurgeon who had a skill set. Uh, you might have had a pain doctor or a physiatrist who are people that do injections that had a skill set. You might have had a physical therapist. And the question is, did these people ever talk to each other? And uh, they were all treating the same patient, but maybe never had an interaction. So the idea of a comprehensive spine center is to get all these people together that are involved. Instead of uh, traditionally, you know, hospitals were divided into departments. That doesn't make sense because patients don't care what department you're in. They care what their problem is. And spine is one of those things. Spine care is one of those things that crosses a lot of boundaries. So when we say we have a comprehensive spine center, we got together, all, we sort of focused the care around spine pathology. And we took all the players involved in that and put them together in a single location. So we interact with each other. We share patients with each other, and we try to figure out in any given situation what is the best thing for our patients. So for instance, in our spine center, we have orthopedic surgeons and neurosurgeons. As I said before, all spine surgeons, but maybe with a little bit of a different bent each one. 
We have physiatrists who are physical medicine rehabilitation doctors. They can do things like injections. They can do things like EMGs, where they're doing nerve tests to see if perhaps they can uh, uh, diagnose a problem. Um, they can prescribe specific physical therapy uh, regimens. Uh, I know as a neurologist, maybe uh, you take some uh, umbrage to their EMGs, but we'll uh, leave it for today. Um, the ha we have physical therapists that are literally next door, and they come to our office. They see patients with us, so we share a philosophy of care around these patients. We have a uh, non-narcotic-based uh, pain management uh, practitioner as well. So all these people that can give you your care are there. So when you show up, you may end up in the wrong office the first time, but we'll get you to the right office, and chances are it's going to be right next door. So we think that's a better way of delivering sort of holistic care for people with spinal problems. What do you see as the future? I mean, we, we're, we've heard about disc replacements. Now it's become fairly common. What's the next step in spine surgery or spine care? So I, I think our real problem is um, we don't actually fix the pathology. We sort of take it away. So what that means is we talked originally a lot of uh, spine pain has to do with wear and tear or degeneration of a disc. Now, right now, the way I fix that is I remove the entire disc and I fuse it or I replace it. I'm not actually making that disc better. Um, so the question is, in the future, can we find a way to regenerate these discs, actually heal the problem as opposed to take the problem away? Uh, I spend, uh, as I said, I did a master's in bioengineering, and um, so I have a lab, and what we work on is trying to find strategies to regrow these discs. So eventually, what I would love to see is we figure out which is your painful disc, uh, where that pain is coming from, and we give you some injection, uh, just like they're giving a steroid injection, this would probably be with the growth factor, a stem cell. This is all still being worked out, but something that can regrow that disc and stop it from wearing out, so you'll never need uh, surgery. This would put me out of business, but maybe for the greater good. When do you think we'll see that? That's a good question. So there's actually clinical trials that are ongoing in, peop in real live people. Uh, nothing has panned out yet. Um, so I think, you know, we're, we're probably a good... Uh, 20 years away from seeing uh, some progress on this. Again, there's a lot of people working on this, and there's been very, very slow progress. Uh, certainly, uh, we haven't found the holy grail yet. Uh, you could go to Tijuana, I think, and get some stem cells injected. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I would necessarily recommend it right now, uh, but the technology is out there, and uh, I think in the next 15 to 20 years, I would imagine we'll see something. Will it be perfect? Probably not yet, uh, but there's a lot of people working on this, and I think we're moving in the right direction. Isaac. I want to thank you very much for spending time today uh, with uh, our listeners and providing such information, and thanks for coming across the border. <laughs> My pleasure. Happy to be here, and I hope I don't get deported. <laughs> Many thanks to our studio producer. Mike Olko has been on the board today. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week, uh, we're going to take a break because I'm going to be on the road, so we will use a taped program. Next up on WTIC is going to be Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives. You can do that by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Just go to registerme.org. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Covaris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.